You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margaret Adovga, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is life in Delhi, the most polluted city on earth, why India's clean energy goals matter. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning. Now, Margareta, it's been a week since our chat, and you've since gone from Mumbai to Delhi. What have you been up to? It has been a week, a truly incredible week, and what I have uh, certainly found to be validated as one of the world's most dynamic, obviously rapidly growing countries. Um, I studied India for many years, and to be here is is truly something special. But uh, since we last spoke, I've done a couple of touristy things. I went and I saw Taylor and uh, had some some garments uh, made up, which I'm really excited to receive, and uh, you know, did, did a little bit of shopping at markets, but uh, I also engaged in a number of meetings related to my real task here, which is uh, building relationships to support the commercialization of new technologies uh, that are needed both in Canada and in India. And uh, one of these is based uh, within the Mining Waste Remediation Company, Tursa Earth Innovations, uh, that I co-founded with a group of really big brains, uh, three of whom are actually Indian by descent. Um, and the technology is there, we're applying new ideas from synthetic biology to the treatment of acid rock drainage, which is a waste product. That's really common when you do large-scale mining, uh, like we do in Canada and in many parts of the world. Uh, there's some of that that happens here in India. Uh, as That technology could potentially be applied to different types of, of waste products. Um, so that's been a really exciting thing to, to think about and put it in the context of, again, this rapidly growing country that has major environmental challenges, major opportunities, uh, you know, likely will be the world's largest economy um, sometime in the next uh, decade or a bit. So that, that's a piece to certainly keep track of. But another reason that I'm here is to examine the potential for um, a new technology for hydrogen production uh, that has been developed in India to be brought to North America. And um, that's sort of an interesting example where, again, this really high human capital, the tremendous uh, concentration of brilliant skills and everything from engineering, natural sciences, um, the way that's concentrated and often applied. You know, we see it at universities across North America. Um, it's just a great example of it. And I met with an official today um, talking about this particular technology and in the process learned very much about the work being done to diversify India's energy and resource needs. Um, you know, they want energy, they want battery technologies that offer strong alternatives to relying on China for its supply of lithium. And uh, China and India (laughs) don't always get along, so uh, there's obviously a strong uh, underpinning for that, Um, but also, you know, an affordability case. Um, They're still driving towards um, uh, battery electric for uh, two-wheeled vehicles by 2030, which is a very ambitious goal. Um, I believe the same goal is true for 2040 for uh, four-wheeled cars. Um, and, you know, having seen the cars on the road here, which are all pretty old, it's a very, very ambitious goal. So they're going to have to find ways to make it affordable. Um, but, of course, um, there's also investments in geothermal energy, offshore oil, uh, waste recovering, including agricultural waste. So, so many things are being explored right now. And it's really exciting to, to see what's coming out of this dynamic and growing place. Mm-hmm. And now for the air quality situation in Delhi, making international headlines, crop burning in neighboring states and annual practices choking the national capital region of India. And it is estimated that 30 to 60 million residents with thick fumes. What effect is that having on the ground? To put it shortly, it's 
intolerable. Uh, it's actually so bad that even with my full air conditioning on, um, my hotel's lobby has a haze that affects visibility. Uh, if you look across it, you can literally see it's like, what's happening there? And I thought it was just, uh, you know, my eyes being a little bit dry. No, it turns out uh, it, the smog is so bad that it is in my hotel's lobby. Um, and even this hermetically sealed hotel room kind of smells off and uh, my throat is super sore and I'm coughing a little bit. Um, and I'm actually very, very privileged. Um, I have absolutely no complaints uh, about any aspect of my life. And um, there's so many people who unfortunately are, you know, being exposed to this regularly. Um, this, this is an annual phenomenon. It lasts for days and weeks. Um, you know, when it happens in B.C., uh, this level of smoke, it's from wildfires, uh, whereas you know, those are unintentional. Um, there's, uh, for the most part, occasionally we get people who, uh, who make bad decisions, but certainly not a, a policy choice uh, to burn something. Um, so what's really puzzling is that what's happening here in India is crop burning. So after crops are harvested, uh, that's usually wheat or potato uh, grown in patties, the farmers need to clear what's called the crop stubble that is left over. And uh, Delhi is surrounded by a number of states, uh, agricultural powerhouse states like Punjab, Haryana, Uttar Pradesh. Uh, so when this burning takes place, um, it releases tremendous amounts of black carbon um, into the air. It dissolved uh, particulate matter that you know really gets up in your, uh, your respiratory pathways. Um, and it also consolidates pollution that's already present in the city from uh, just this tremendous amount of traffic. And, um, you know, you said 30 to 60 million residents. The national capital region is so vast. There's so many cities that uh, geographers can't even determine how they're going to count it. Um, So it's a very, very wide estimate with a huge, huge total population. But um, these are people who are being affected by a real hazard to human health on a regular basis. Um, I don't have asthma or any respiratory conditions, and I'm feeling unwell. Uh, a really big chunk of the population here, you know, works outside. Um, living situations typically don't have air conditioning to filter the air. Uh, not that filters really fix this problem fully anyways. Um, and breathing this in for a couple of days or weeks in a year, uh, breathing it year-round uh, in a slightly, slightly better manner, uh, it's known to cause preventable illnesses and even death. There's serious population risk um, and it's not fair for anyone to have to have air conditioning to have breathable air uh, or private filtration to have drinkable water. Um, but the core challenge here is just the affordability piece. And India is a democracy. Um, this challenges the government's ability and their will to just, you know, intervene and say, okay, we're going to stop this practice. Uh, farmers choose to engage in it uh, because it's something that on the balance for them appears to be more affordable, even though it has huge costs. Um, there's strong scientific arguments that it actually uh, affects the fertility of the soil and all those other things. Um, but it's not just a matter of discretionary consumer spending. So when government does make a decision on something like this, it does affect people's economic viability when they're, you know, say, farm operators. And really this all comes down to the status of India as a developing nation, one with massive, massive uh, levels of poverty um, and underpinned by its drive to create a brighter future for many people. So. I'm thinking a lot about what we can do on this. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, obviously you are thinking quite about a lot about these issues, being especially in the environment. So how do you think that Canada can support the well-being of people in developing countries like India? That's a good question. I, I, I think in a general sense, 
uh, we need to start off by accepting the tremendous luck and privilege that we have. And I don't mean that in a, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to flagellate yourself. So it, we have to engage in an, a collective act of self-flagellation um, as sort of a necessary part of this. Um, it's, it's just being realistic. Um, you know, I, I was born in Vancouver uh, to a family that had immigrated from Eastern Europe, and uh, neither one of my parents uh, experienced uh, real hunger on growing up. They, you know, had challenging upbringings, but uh, their parents did. Their parents uh, had uh, real hunger in, the, in their lives. Um, and they were from agrarian uh, communities um, that hadn't seen the benefits of widespread industrialization. Um, and this is a process that, for the most part in the developed world, has taken place. Uh, we have pockets uh, in Canada where the human development is atrociously bad, um, and that's because of colonialism, it's because of racism, it's because of a failure to prioritize reconciliation. So Indigenous <clears throat> communities will pay the price for that. Uh, but for the most part, Canada is remarkably developed. Um, this exact same process that took place mostly generations ago in Canada is happening around the world right now. And I think the really important part is recognizing that the decisions we are making about our pathways to a better environment and uh, cleaner air and uh, lower emissions and cleaner drinking water, um, there are often unintended costs and um, consequences to the things that we choose to do. So we need to think of everything holistically. And when we're making decisions in the, in the interest of what we call collective well-being, we need to understand what it means for people a world away who have a very different quality of life. Uh, you know, $30, $40 to me seems like, oh, okay, yeah, I can afford that probably, depending on what. Uh, going out to eat, sure, <clears throat> not a problem. Um, vast majority of people in India, um, that's actually probably a sizable sum. Average income is very, very low, um, and that's true of many parts of the world. And uh, just the level of consumer choice and discretionary spending that we're able to engage in is a world apart. So um, I hope everyone remembers that, and you know, policymakers especially remember this. When we make decisions about things that affect Canada's role as a trade partner, Canada's uh, participation in global conversations, uh, about economic policy and environmental policy, and as consumers, when we're choosing which products we're purchasing and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. One more thing, Margareta. Canada has ordered three Chinese investment groups to divest their stakes in Canadian critical mineral companies. Why? Well, it certainly um, goes to, to prove the uh, skepticism that uh, India is holding uh, China in with respect to uh, lithium supply. Um, there, there was a, a defense and intelligence um, review that was conducted recently by the Canadian government. And the result of that review uh, was that there was a national security risk um, if these companies continued to hold control over um, Canadian mining interests. And uh, the way that basically works is we are rapidly transitioning our economy away from fossil fuels right now. Uh, we need much more battery, battery electric vehicles. Uh, there's a significant number, it's 13 to start with, and kind of a broader list of several dozen uh, critical minerals and metals. And Canada is very lucky we have them. Uh, Not all of them, but many of them. Um, And we can mine them. And when there is complex uh, geopolitical uh, football being played, um, having ownership of companies that develop these resources 
uh, in a way that could potentially affect our national security can be very challenging. And, you know, I'll just end by, uh, you know, pointing out how OPEC operates. Um, OPEC is uh, a literal cartel of uh, organized uh, oil-producing nations that uh, have a majority of production. And because they have just, just, the, just the fact that they have the majority of oil production, a resource that the world relies on and needs, um, they're able to exert significant geopolitical power and shape foreign policy around the world to their whims. Um, you know, why does Canada do business with Saudi Arabia? Um, why are they an ally uh, and not a foe? Um, sometimes it's a values question. I think a lot of the time it's an economic question, and um, that's really the piece that uh, this, uh, this story about uh, Chinese investment in Canada certainly reminds us of. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too. All the best.